everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Language Lounge. My name is Michelle Ola. I'm your host, and I have Dr. Rich Madel here today with me. Uh, and I am really excited. Thank you so much for coming, Rich, and talking to me today about cultural perspectives and the three P's and authentic resources. And we're going to talk about a whole bunch of fun stuff uh, today. So why don't you just introduce yourself really quickly? Tell us about your teaching and learning context. And that'd be great. Thank you. My pleasure. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is really exciting for me, especially knowing the, the, the list of absolutely spectacular guests that you've had. Um, I feel kind of humbled to be to be here. Oh. Thank you for that. Uh, so, yes, my name is Rich Madel. I am a Spanish teacher by trade. Um, I also uh, I also chair the Department of World Languages in my district, 6 through 12. So, um, so one of the hats that I wear is on is, is within kind of curricular programming and things like that. So uh, while a lot of what I focus on is what I do in the classroom, a lot of my focus professionally has kind of been in that broader context of which, what could we all be doing and how can we all be kind of working toward um, common goals. And so for that reason, one of the things that I have, I have really been focusing on for a long time is uh, teacher development over a broad scale. So I find myself um, doing a lot of conference presentations, doing small workshops and things like that, really trying to, to have that, uh, that rising tide lift all boats. Um, I yeah, love that. Us, yeah. That's great. And I love that not only are you doing that and contributing to the profession in a very big way, but you're also in the classroom and, and you have that firsthand credibility and experience and, you know, working through all of this as you're also helping others work through all of this. And that is such a valuable um, experience that you're, that you're going to share with us today. So I really... Really appreciate it. So all of this kind of started, I mean, I've known, I've seen you on Twitter and followed you and seen you at conferences and kind of been a fan from afar. But when I really wanted to like be brave and say, hey, Rich, will you be on my podcast? Um, especially is when uh, there was a couple of instances and one of them was a, a Twitter thread uh, that I think Sarah brought up. Um, Sarah Reckley, yeah. Was that? Sarah Breckley, that's who it was, and what kind of started this. And there was lots of great conversations in this. And it was talking about the three Ps, so product practices and perspectives that are part of our language when we're teaching, you know, world languages. And but it was really about how tricky that perspectives, that last one can be, and how we can kind of, you know, go products, check, that's pretty straightforward you know, practices, eh, there can be some underlying things that we can kind of have issues with, but it's not too bad. But then you get to that perspectives and how do you do that without stereotyping, without kind of wading into these waters that can be tricky. Um, and your response to that, I thought was so thought, well thought out, so thoughtful and very clear to, I think, really help teachers understand like how we can approach this. And so there was that. And then there was just your really very fun talked about actual presentation that that I kept hearing about on on Twitter and from other people that I wasn't able to attend. And so I felt like those two things, um, which was about CI and, and uh, authentic resources, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, they both go together so well with this conversation. So, There's definitely a lot of overlapping themes to to all of these, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So why don't you start just with, with, you know, kind of those three P's, how you approach them, what they are, and, and kind of what your, you know, what that beginning of that thread was about and, and your thinking on the three P's. Yeah. So uh, uh, that conversation really started with, and this is a conversation that I have been trying, you know, I've been trying to encourage teachers to have, and that, that is that, that cultural instruction is a really, really valuable component of language instruction. Um, and, but oftentimes teachers, they, they are nervous or they feel overwhelmed by the idea of like, well, how do I teach culture? Like what even is culture? Um, and so starting at that point, that's where I feel like the three P's, that three P's paradigm is a really helpful tool to just understand what is culture, right? To take a really, really broad concept and just kind of reduce it to really workable parts. Those three P's being products, practices, and perspectives. And as you mentioned, products, that's simple, right? That's the, that's the kind of, what do you see? That's I, I, when I, 
talk very explicitly with my students, right? I, I use the idea of those three Ps. We talk about it um, overtly. And so the products are easy, right? That's just, again, that's the thing. That's the what. Um, oftentimes tangible, but not necessarily so. Uh, the practices, again, that, that too, as you mentioned, is pretty straightforward. If the product is the what, the practices then are the how. How are people behaving? Um, oftentimes, how are they behaving with that product? And you're right that those two things are pretty straightforward. What gets trickier, though, uh, is the perspectives. Um, the perspectives, as I like to reduce it, that's then the why. That's the how do you understand the significance of that thing? How do you understand um, why or how or when people are behaving in, in the way that they are culturally? And to go back to what you mentioned initially, well, you know, that's, that's all well and good. That's easy. I think one of the things that's problematic about that perspectives piece is that if you take it for how we have come to understand it um, through actful and kind of through the literature that supports the use of the three P's, that perspectives piece is always just its meanings, it, uh, it, it's people's attitudes, values, and ideas. And just that has that has the that has the ability to get tricky and get kind of messy because by definition it means that we need to start getting inside people's heads and i i completely sympathize when teachers are like i just don't feel comfortable doing that uh, and that was the that was the, the tweet that sarah breckley sent out and she said okay you know the, these peas are all well and good but what about this one and how can i do that yeah. in a way uh, and what I always say is I, I want to teach culture with reverence, right? I don't want to denigrate. I don't want to stereotype. I, I want to uphold. Uh, and I want to put these cultural products and practices really on a pedestal for my students of like, look how cool this is. And so how do you tap into cultural perspectives with reverence? That is much easier said than done, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where both the conversation, you know, in Twitter got very great and, and people's ideas and, and perspectives and, and things coming through. Um, and it is, it is hard. And I think one of the things that was mentioned in that tweet was also like, even if you think about it, when you're talking about American culture, what is America? I mean, if we lump in American culture, who's American? <laughs> you know, I mean, I know that I have a very different culture from other Americans yeah. and we have, you know, this kind of subcultures and it gets very complicated. And so, you know, you, and I think that was one thing that was, was brought up as well is just, we stay away from what, it, what does yeah. that mean? Mexican so, so culture or, or French culture, right? That's very, very, that different. for me so is one of like, the, about that. yeah, that, that, that for me is one of those really key takeaways that culture is not monolithic. When you start just taking really broad brushes about culture, like they do this and they do that. You are, you are dancing on a line that is going to end up troublesome soon. Somewhere, um, right? Yeah, Absolutely. And, and that's another reason why I have been a proponent of uh, using authentic materials to the extent that they are um, that that they're appropriate. I'm, I've been a proponent of using authentic materials because one of one of the the really awesome aspects of using authentic materials in a language classroom is it allows me to just facilitate comprehension of somebody else's perspective, somebody else's voice. And so I no longer have to be the one to speak on behalf of a culture that I can't even define. But now I just we, we get to work together to just understand this individual and their interpretation of cultural products, practices, and perspectives. And so it really allows me to kind of be hands-off in trying to dictate, um, again, culture that, again, I have, as you mentioned, I can't even define my own culture, let alone begin <laughs> right. to try to define somebody else's. I mean, that to me definitely sounds, sounds problematic. Right. Absolutely. And so just the way, and I think you know, traditionally, maybe how some of us learned learned the language growing up, whether that was in the 80s or the 90s or before that, um, you know, I think it was just the teacher telling us like, oh, this is what they do in Mexico. They sell or they celebrate Day of the Dead in Mexico or they do this or they do that. And where it was meant to show us, you know, the ways things are done differently. I think it also made it 
be kind of that that other or different and all in kind of the things that were highlighted were unusual and strange. Right. And, and when you come from that place, even when you start making comparisons, then are we doing what we want to do? Right. Are right. we really having students think about things in, in the way um, that we want them to? So. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, how do you do this? How do you facilitate this conversation? The one thing I, I you know, you did say right away was that you you overtly talk about this and the three P's with your students. So how does that conversation come about or how do you do that? So and this that. is yeah, this is where kind of, you know, putting on a, a, a program leader's hat. Um, this is where we have kind of built in to um, the the skeleton of our curricula that we are going to be explicit about the three P's really from the very beginning. And so at every at every level, we make sure that we have opportunities um, to to be explicit about culture in this manner. Um, as a program, we we assess uh, we assess using authentic materials. That's a value that we that we have said that we share together, and so we have built that in. And so, if we're if we're working with authentic materials, where culture is naturally embedded a part of it, so then that gives us the opportunity to 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 view it through a cultural lens as well, or through at least kind of like a, cult, a cultural investigator's lens. Um, and so, again, that's that's something that we build in very early on because we want our students to be able to uh, be able to be analytical, be able to be critical um, and to be to make cultural comparisons, again, in a way that's reverent, in a way that demonstrates a really, really broad understanding of how culture fits in to the world. Um, and I, sh I should also say, too, and I think that this segues into a what I consider to be a really important point when discussing culture and in particular discussing cultural perspectives. I think that that definition of perspectives as we have come to understand it, I think is really limiting. And I think it, 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 it creates, I think a lot of teachers to still say, but wait, how do you want me to get inside people's minds? When, when I talk to my students about those three P's and I reduce it to a product is a what, a practice is a how, and a perspective is a why, when we just ask that question why, we find ourselves in a realm that is so much broader than just individual beliefs or ideas about things. And I encourage my students to start thinking about broader concepts of the influence of geography, of economy, of history, of traditions. And by doing that, it opens the doors to having really rich uh, cross-curricular connections and conversations, again, about these things that they learned in social studies or they learned in their, uh, in their economics course or all of these things. So it's no longer just getting inside people's heads. But, you know, if, if, if you're in a unit where you're talking about foods very naturally, you should be asking, well, how come we're eating this? And if I were to go there, I'd find that on the menu. And I think that it can't be avoided. Well, let's look at where, where we are situated. Let's look about, you know, let's, let's see where we are in relation to water sources, in relations to other food sources. Uh, again, the, all of that comes into play. And why are we not talking about that? And, you know, why is that not relevant when we come to understand these products and these practices? I love so much about that, honestly. Like uh, the one thing I, I to as well. Every time I hear you say "why," the tone that you're using in it is in a tone of curiosity, right? Absolutely. Like I can hear, I can hear you. Like I wonder why. Like just it, that whole perspective. Not like why do they do that? You know, it's right. it's it's really that approach of you know, I wonder why uh, they do it this way, or they might do it this way, or, you know, and I, I think something that does too is it, there, we're all going to come up to situations where we wonder, why are they doing it like that, right? But asking that question right there is that first amazing step into understanding other people, right? Yeah. And I just think that's so, and so great. This is, this is another... Uh, this is another connection that I made in in that actual presentation where I said, you know, what's what's the point? Why would we want to value using authentic materials in a classroom? And I made the case that using authentic materials is just one step toward developing that that sense of intercultural communication, right? Not just communicative competence, right. but a communicative competence that is tolerant, that is empathetic, and that is critical 
and understanding of the person that I'm speaking with, right? And so for that reason, I'm a really big fan of the image model, which we can talk about, but there's a piece of that image model that that Eileen Glisson and Richard Donato talk about, and that is the idea of generating hypotheses about cultural perspectives. In other words, we don't need to we don't need to to provide statements of fact about how people view the world or why things are that we're just we're just proposing that I think based on what I know about X, Y, Z, that this is how I could explain it. And it's it's more again, it's it's a hypothesis that we can then kind of guess and check by doing additional research or by having a broader conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that you're right, that that mindset is helpful in, again, talking about culture in a way that is reverent. Yeah, I love that. And I do, I do want to talk about that, that image model, because I think um, it's a great way to frame things. Um, and honestly, hypothesis generation in general, in language, in life, in co- talking about culture is so important. It's so engaging. It really adds that critical thinking aspect to things and and um, that room for discussion. And one of the things that Actful talks about is investigate. Well, if, if you give me the answer, then I don't have to investigate anything, right? right? Um, so tell me about the, the model, the image model, and how you kind of have used it. Um, so have you seen it used? For sure. I think that the image model, if you're unfamiliar with the image model, this is a really, really great tool to use if you're saying like, I want to teach with culture, but I just don't know how to begin, or I don't feel comfortable that I have the tools in my personal toolbox to do it. The image model is in essence, a lesson framework. It's almost a lesson template. Or it could be multiple lessons. It doesn't even need to be reduced to a single class period. It really could be something that happens over over days. But in essence, the image model, uh, it stands for, the I stands for just presenting images, just displaying images. And honestly, this is something that we do as language teachers. So if you're familiar with kind of see, think, wonder protocols, this is a beautiful time to do it, right? So as you present an image, the next piece is to just really make observations and just as a teacher, I just facilitate uh, what are we seeing? What are we curious about? Right. Again, this is this is that kind of culture hook. This is that curiosity hook. We're good at that as language teachers. This is that that's the first part of the image model from then. So we got the image. We make observations. The next piece is to then just analyze additional information. And this is where if you have a text. And of course, that is a really broad term, right? But if you have any piece of information that will allow your students to have then a greater depth of understanding of what they saw or for them to potentially answer the questions that they were curious about, this is the time to present that. So that's the IMA. And then once they've gotten that broader understanding through that text that you work with or multiple texts, of course, Uh, That next step is for them to generate hypotheses, to kind of go back and try to understand it now with a deeper, more profound cultural lens. And then the last piece is just the extension piece. It's like, okay, well, now that we have this broader understanding, we have this more critical understanding, like nail what? And so that, that E of image is just to kind of explore further, to reflect further. If there are still unanswered questions, kind of go back to the drawing board. Um, but that's the image model, like in a nutshell. And I, I at this point, I, I take broad liberties with it and I take kind of detour from when, you know, I, I play with it. Sure. But in its, yeah. in its core, it is such a simple template um, and a really, really powerful one for teachers who are unsure, like how to go about teaching culture in their, in their classroom. That's awesome. I know I saw a presentation um I think it was by Donato and he talked about um, he did it like an English one and it was about coffee. And the, in the first image was like Dunkin' Donuts and, and America runs on coffee. And what does that tell you about Americans yeah. relationship with coffee? Right. Uh, but then it went further and he did. Uh, there were other images of people working in coffee shops or people, you know, so again, like then you bring in another perspective, you know, because again, I think once we get stuck into one uh, even one authentic resource in one thought process, one perspective, you know, we, we get, we get, we start 
like you said, walking that line. Um, and, and so it makes it a little bit more difficult, but again, then bringing in those different sort of things and then maybe comparing them. I think he compared them to coffee houses in France or in Paris versus in Thailand or someplace else. And how, you know, you can bring in those comparisons. You can bring in some further research and some ideas. Um, and what I love is, yeah, there's different relationships with coffee, right? So Americans have different, it powers us to work. We see it as a way to keep going, right? But we also, you know, use it for relaxing or whatever. Well, and that's that's a piece of that image model that, again, if you look at it as an acronym, you may not see it, but I'm I'm a big fan of kind of setting the stage. Like when you, you know, as teachers, we tap into prior knowledge. That's how we kind of set the stage for our lesson. I like to start with what is our relationship with what we're seeing? Like, let's establish that now so that we'll then kind of have a basis of comparison to be even more analytical when we come to understand this, this product or this practice kind of in a broader, in a broader way. And so again, you know, for me, I really enjoy kind of the end result being for us to kind of make those cultural comparisons. And again, not in a way for us to say, oh, we're different, therefore we're better, worse, you know, not in a value judgment mm-hmm. way, but just almost in kind of like an anthropological way. Like it, it just is the way it is. And now I understand a little bit more as to why it is the way it is. Yeah. And and they tend to, and then they're going to understand a little bit more why they are the way they are as well. Like Definitely. as people, when we look at other people and why they do things, because like you said, it's hard to unpack your own cultural perspective sometimes like how did this you know growing up in the midwest affect me well i didn't know how much it affected me until i moved to florida and it's a totally different you know perspective down here so you know kind of know thyself as well as knowing definitely and honestly that's so that is again as a as a as a program leader you know one of the things that that we have done as a program is we have kind of we established early on like what what's our mission here? Like, what are we doing? Why would a why would a student want to take our class versus woodshop? Or why why are they going to take French over microbiology? And we we developed a mission statement together. And one of the one of the threads in our kind of collective mission is that idea of self exploration through the exploration of the world and understanding our own community as it relates to communities around the world. Um, and I think I just personally believe that that's just that's a critical piece of like uh, of just a like global mindset or a global citizenship is that is that understanding of where I and we fit in to the bigger picture. So, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. self-exploration is critical. And, and what a like what a perfect place for it to happen in language classrooms. We're automatically set up to do this. Right. Yes. So if we are not doing these things, if we're, we're really losing an opportunity, right. We're to, to really add value to that yes. person's life by having them think critically about these sort of things and, and deeply yeah. about topics. I, mean, listen, about- I have said that our classrooms, like it's the place in a K through 12 curriculum. It is our responsibility to, to take that on. Yeah. And truly, we are the, we are the we are the most well suited for it. Um, we are the most interested in it. I mean, you know, you think yeah. of language teachers. We are the ones who have traveled the most, who have made relationships in other languages, I and mean, we are the ones to really be beating that drum for our students and modeling that kind of that critical mindset. Yeah, that that's great. And so I I love that idea of that that image model to really help you know help that process of of where to start, right? How to do this. And and I think that you've mentioned it before, whether I saw it on Twitter, or we talked about it, about it really that that image model gives us as a teacher to be a facilitator of these conversations and not mm-hmm. the expert. Yeah. And I think right there, I, I feel a sense of, whew, I don't have to be an expert on yeah. every, you know, Spanish speaking country or whatever. I don't have to be that expert. I don't have to have a right answer, right? Yes. Um, because you are facilitating those conversations. And I think that is the, the the key to even starting to tackle some of these, you know, challenges that pe- that teachers right. feel when they're talking about. And even, you know, e- even as I am facilitating my students generating hypotheses and communicating their hypotheses, if I can confirm or deny, you know, if, if I have a better mm-hmm. understanding and say, absolutely, that 
and, you know, according to my understanding, that is one of the reasons why that is the case. Or if I don't, I say, great idea. You should Google that later. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And I don't, ha- again, I don't have to be the expert there. I can just be, you know, I, to the extent that I know, I know, but to the extent that I don't, it doesn't make me any better or worse at what I'm doing. Right. At the end of the day, the, just the, the exercise that the students are going through to just make an informed interpretation of their world. That's the goal, right? That's the, that's the job well done. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you walk through maybe what an image lesson or even it doesn't have to go that exact model, but what it looks like in a a real world sort of example. So um, I know uh, in your, in your post, you talked about the Picasso bullfighting picture. Yeah. Uh, so you can either say that one, or if there's another one that that kind of strikes you. Well, I'll, um, I'll start with that one, and that one's that one is a pretty dynamic, and again, it, it takes it takes <laughs> liberties to the image model, but in my description, maybe you'll you'll see it. Um, so we yeah we start just very broadly, um, and I should say that my intention with this lesson in particular is to really have their interpretations take twists and turns. Um, I have them kind of document their hypotheses at multiple stages as they interact with new pieces of information. Because I, one of the things that I found in this lesson in particular um, is that it continues to, to hook them in as they keep seeing information that challenges what they had initially thought and documented. So well, that- how engaging too, to keep to yes. keep, you know, keep coming back to it and, and having them go, oh, but, oh, right. wait, uh, you know, I love that. And that's why I love this example yeah. in particular, because so, I'm like, ooh. Yeah, I, I agree. And that is that is definitely the that is definitely the thought process from my end. So this is a lesson where we begin, um, and, and I should say we're in the context of reading a novel about uh, a character that's related to bullfighting. And so this is just kind of one of our, our cultural detours. Um, and so we start that lesson. The hook is to just um, is to interpret some of Picasso's painting. And this is kind of one of our first times where we're where we're really looking to understand bullfighting. And so I use those those Picasso paintings and really just to kind of identify aspects of bullfighting. So this is almost like a, a vocabulary presentation, if not a vocab kind of confirmation. Um, but as we're identifying these pieces, I'm having my students kind of come to conclusions, right? And they're really graphic images of, of bullfighting, naturally. Um, and so I asked them at one point, I'm like, I'm like, these, like, are Spaniards really violent? Like, do, do you think that that Spaniards like really like animal violence? Like, is, is this what you think? And a lot of them will say, it looks like it. I mean, based on this, it sure seems that way. Uh, and some kids will say, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe that's the case. But very few will say, like, no, absolutely not. And I say, okay, well, so let's see if we can kind of explore that a little bit more. And I say, what we're going to do to do that is I'm going to show you, uh, I'm going to show you two uh, really important cultural products from Spain. And in fact, we're going to we're going to explore two bullfighting arenas. And I start them out um, with the bullfighting arena in Madrid. And this is, I mean, this is almost like kind of like an, a web quest kind of thing. If if you remember that term from a million years ago. Uh, where what I do is I send them off into Google Earth. And what I want them to do is to drop and dangle that little guy, put him in the street, and I want them to see like the the enormity of this cultural product, right? I want them to feel how valuable it must be just based, boom, right in the center of the city. And it's enormous. It's gorgeous. The architecture is, is, is awesome. Um, and I want them to dangle the guy, put him inside. I want them to see it. And so I, I, through that process, I have them documenting their observations, right? What is it? How would you describe it? What does it look like? And then I ask them, I say, okay, well, based on all of this, how valuable do you think bullfighting is in Spain? What do we think people's opinions of our bullfighting? And naturally, well, they must love it. I mean, look at that. This must be the best. I say, okay, cool. Um, now I want you to go see a bullfighting arena in Barcelona. And I tell them, you know, dangle your little guy in there. But this time they have a little trouble. They, they, if they put it outside, they see the same circle arena and it looks, the architecture looks similar. But I, I ask them to try to dangle it inside. And what they end up seeing is like a, a mall. And this is where I get these kids like, well, 
I, I, I can't find it. This isn't it. You know, like, are you sure this? And I go, I, I don't know. It looked, it looked like a bullfighting arena to me, right? What about, you know, you said. And so this is where I say, okay, it seems like maybe you could benefit from additional information. And yeah. <laughs> so this is where I then present a, a, a news article that describes the fact that this once uh, well-known bullfighting arena in Barcelona has since been converted into a shopping mall. And why has it been converted into a shopping mall? Well, because a law has been passed where bullfighting is outlawed in Catalonia. Why? Well, because the perspectives are such that it's not as popular as, as you may have imagined. And in fact, there's a lot of people who have really strong opinions uh, against bullfighting. And so now all of a sudden I have them document an even more updated hypothesis. Well, wait a second. Are you still believing what you thought before? And of course they say, well, wait, wait a second. Maybe, oh, okay, maybe it's a little bit more complicated than, than I thought. But I think that this is a really important piece of when working with culture. And again, this is something that I have, I have advocated that teachers do often is plan for cultural complexity. Not only is it more interesting, right? Not only is it going to keep students on our toes, but it allows us to present culture in a way that's realistic, right? Again, culture is not monolithic. And so if we, you know, if we say, yeah, this is, this is culture, but also show them, but there are alternative views, there are alternative perspectives or perspectives maybe within a subgroup or within a larger culture group. I think that we benefit our students by allowing them to, again, to, to get their hands dirty with the messy stuff of culture, because that's, yeah. that's the real stuff. That's culture as we know it. So anyway, so that's, that is, that is that lesson kind of in a nutshell. Yeah. I, there's so many great things about that. Not, and what, and so I know people are thinking, so Rich, are you doing this all in the target language? What is the role of yeah. the target language in, um, in this lesson or in cultural lessons? Yeah. So in you, in your perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, I, so I would say, generally speaking, to the extent that I am the one actively facilitating the lesson, I'm going to be doing as much as I can to have that that exploration, that analysis in the target language. Um, that being said, in a in a lesson like that, I actually have them doing a lot of that on their own. Um, and because I can't be there to kind of highly, highly scaffold what they're saying, I have them doing a, some of their like, you know, what are people thinking when they're tapping into the perspectives piece? I have them just kind of documenting that in English so that they can kind of see the growth there. Um, that being said, you know, these students are novice, novice high, intermediate, low. And so a lot of the observations that I asked them to make, um, the the, the text that I had them analyze, I mean, that's definitely in the target language. Um, so, the, you know, the, the real answer to your question is to the extent that they can, it's in the target language. And, you know, my role as the facilitator in a language class where, you know, obviously one of the, you know, one of the values that we have is to grow communicative competence as well. Uh, I'm doing that in the target language as much as possible. Um, and I should also Absolutely. say, the question often is like, well, how do you get novices to explore this stuff? And I say that like, this is, it can be input based. Um, you know, you can, you can provide checklists observations where I'm going to look at an image and I'm going to give you 20 things and you check off the 10 that are here. And not only can we talk about what we're seeing, we can also have a conversation about the 10 that's not there. And you can kind of preempt the, you know, the, the expectations versus reality just by being able to say, well, what are we checking? What are we not checking? Um, and the other piece here too is oftentimes if I feel like the, the generating hypotheses of, of cultural perspectives is going to get tricky, this is where if you're familiar at all with kind of a, a really basic signal task of possible, probable, or impossible, I just I throw talk out, about that. I love that. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's awesome. Again, it's so basic, but it's 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 awesome, and it, it allows you uh, to get into some like pretty heady stuff. But it's input based. I present the idea. Your job is to just 
interpret it. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. But I can sure facilitate a, a class discourse if I have half that say impossible and half that say probable. Well, then I'm going to pick and prod and I'm going to pull out those that maybe can produce an idea. And I will, you know, I'll be the the the, the discourse facilitator. I love that. Yeah, that you. I think it's hard sometimes to imagine or for teachers to imagine that you can have big ideas with small language. Yeah. And I, I know the more I've worked with um, elementary teachers and see how they can engage in real content, yes. deep content with very simple language, I think is, is hard. To, I think sometimes for us secondary people to really kind of wrap our heads around, you know, um, but there are some simple kind of strategies and um, you know, simplifying the language, but also, like you said, providing those tools, those scaffolds, having people sort things. They don't have to produce all of this language right. all the time. They can just interact with that that input in a lot of ways. So are there any, any other strategies that you use to simplify the language while still bringing in those big ideas? Um, I mean, I think I think a lot of it really goes to to that point of, you know, I, as the teacher, get to um, I get to kind of present ideas and my students can be the ones that just kind of, again, navigate through them and figure out which ones more closely relate to where they stand or not. Um, you know, the other pieces and this is something that that I have been I've been trying to share more recently is that idea of like. Uh, so I, I tell a lot of stories, especially in my in my lower level, my lower level classes. And so one of the things that I try to do is I try to embed these cultural concepts into the story. Um, uh, you know, I say like I, I teach a, I teach a, an, introduc an introductory level Spanish course um, on day one. On day one, we introduce a character in that story on day two that character has to interact with an authentic document that I then just get to pass around. Um, and so, I mean, truly like day one is in the target language by day two, we're, we're navigating through authentic documents and we're making cultural comparisons. Um, and so, you know, it, this is me putting my money where my mouth is, I promise you. <laughs> um, but this, yeah. is, you know, when I, when I talk about how CI, uh, and authentic resources can exact coexist. It's it's through a strategy that, that I call like breaking the fourth wall. I plan on my characters having to interact with some authentic text that I get to say, hey, wait, pause. Let's all take a look at it together. Let's let's go through it together so we can kind of see what the character's seeing. And then we can kind of move on after we've done our analysis. And so this is a way that we can kind of blend two worlds that some say are competing and I would disagree with. Oh, I would I would disagree with as well. We <laughs> definitely agree on that. Uh, what I, I again that that's such a great the motivation, the power of storytelling, along with that real world meaningful application right. and putting those two together is really the best experience, you know, in my in my perspective as well that you can really get. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's the other maybe misconception is like teaching about. Te again, teach uh, teaching about, I don't know, you're teaching about kind of facilitating conversations about culture, having these discussions has to be like super serious, right? And it doesn't have to be serious, right? It shouldn't always be serious because if nothing else, funny things happen when you start interacting with another culture that, yeah. you know, they get you in positions where they're pretty funny. I've been in some, you know, pretty funny positions in hindsight where, you know, when I was interacting with some cultural products yeah. that I didn't know what they were or how to, you know, or how practices I wasn't really sure how to do. And you find yourself in these situations, right? Um, Culture is so the hook. Culture is the hook. I mean, this is, this is what gets them yeah. wanting to understand what's going on. Again, we talk about kind of, you know, the, the, what makes language acquisition happen, right? Comprehensible input, but yeah. compelling input. Uh, yes. And I think that there is no greater compelling course content than culture. I mean, our students are naturally inclined to want to understand the people that they are, you know, are coexisting with. And so absolutely, that's the hook. That's the hook. Yeah, I love it. So do you, and I want to hear more now from your program hat. Um, how aligned are you and the other teachers with the resources you use, the lessons you do? Are you kind of creating all this stuff on your own? Are you doing it collaboratively? Um, do you have 
probably both in re, you know yeah. in real life. But how how does this how does this work um, for you and your you know your your colleagues? Um, so it is. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a collaborative effort to the extent that there are multiple teachers kind of working and and employing the same curriculum. Um, and so there's definitely collaborative effort there. And I would say that on kind of a broad spectrum, uh, one of our intentions as well is making sure that students are getting kind of a broad um, interaction with a variety of like geographical zones. Um, and so, you know, we want to, we don't want to just like beat a dead horse where we're only going to talk about Spain, but you know, the Spanish speaking mm -hmm. world in our context is, is really, really broad. And so, you know, I have a course where, you know, right. One novel is set in Spain. And so we kind of take a deep dive in there, but I, I teach another one that's it's in Cuba and we make sure that that's an opportunity that we can kind of understand that cultural context a little bit better. And so, yeah, I mean, there is, there's definitely some, some cohesion in a, in, in large part so that we are kind of bouncing around and seeing lots of different aspects of the world and lots of different versions of culture and, you know, all, all of that. So yeah, that's, that's definitely um, something that we have uh, that, that we, we are mindful of for sure. That's, that's great. And because I know there's probably teachers out there that are on their own and they're trying to figure out like, okay, so I have my curriculum, I have my resource, whether it's novels, textbook, whatever it is, lists, mm -hmm. guides, mm -hmm. you have your things. Um, and maybe it has a little blurb about oh, yeah. some cultural product and maybe a practice. And then yeah. it always just says kind of, how does this affect the perspectives, right? It doesn't really tell you right. like how to do this, right? And so huh? how do you go about finding these these authentic resources, um, find, choosing what sort of experiences and perspectives, um, you know, can you kind of deconstruct that, your, your process and thinking? I know this is going to be hard for you. That I'm is, sure that's this the million point. dollar question. That's the million dollar question yeah. because not only... <laughs> not only is finding an authentic resource uh, challenging, period, but then finding the right authentic resource, right? So, you know, it's one thing to just find kind of like the the content niche that, you, that you're within, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the curricular context that you're really focusing on. But then to have the resource uh, be accessible in terms of who are my students, what is their proficiency level, uh, you know, what is the language that they already know, how much pre-teaching am I going to need to do, how much scaffolding am I need to do while they read it. That's uh, that really is the million dollar question. And that's I, I guess if there's one thing that I can say is that it, it's just not something that happens overnight. Um, Unfortunately, and I don't, I don't know how representative I am. I'd like to say, unfortunately, that I'm that this is a, an experience that is pretty, pretty broadly uh, held. But I feel like I go through life with a lens of, can I use this in my classroom or can I not use it in my classroom? Right? I mean, like for me, my target language it's integrated in so many aspects of my life: the the, the media that I consume, the relationships that I maintain. And so I'm just, I'm always, there's a layer of my lens that I see the world. It, it's always kind of evaluating, can I use this? Is it relevant? Can I, you know, it's just, and yeah. I, so over time I have compiled resources, but when you get the right one, you milk it, you milk it for all yes. that it's worth. Um, and, you know, you, it's not ever just kind of like a one-off. I mean, it's again, I'm, I'm pre-teaching, I'm establishing, you know, prior knowledge um, we're working through it. So there's a before, there's a during, and there's an after where it is completely, you know, we're immersed in that document for a little bit. We're really trying to get the most out of it. And I, yeah, I, I think that's so important. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I keep saying Whether, document, but again, I like, I, I hate to limit that, that concept of, of text, right? That an authentic yeah. material, an authentic text can be an image. It can be a chart. It can be a song. It can be a map. Um, yeah. So excuse me by just yeah. saying document because it really is not just. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that is so true. Like you don't, that's just a practical tip. If you're going to use an authentic anything that you've spent probably hours <laughs> figuring out scaffolding, figuring, pulling out the relevant vocab, doing all the stuff, don't just use it once. Oh. Yeah. You, you know, you want to use the heck out of that for, for, oh, 
you know, for quite a few different reasons, input and just for sure. whatever. But um, that's a, that's a, a great, a great tip. Yeah. Um, and, and I think just practically, you know, if you don't know, if you're a teacher and you don't really know where to start, taking that little blurb, that little blurb about that product and the blurb about the practice, and maybe just starting by applying that, that image model and, and seeing if you can get them to, you know, take away the text that, that the textbook or the curriculum or whatever gave you, take that away and just take that image and let them see, you know, brainstorm ideas, generate, you know, hypotheses and give them some more um, resources on it. Right. Um, I do feel like I, I when I first started teaching, I just, we called it Rallya most of the time, um, but I stole so much stuff abroad. Like literally I'd come home with like 15 menus that I took and, and whatever it might be. Right. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, but it, so it was scarce and hard to find. Mm-hmm. Now I almost think it's too easy to find authentic resources. And so there's that overload as well. Like you yeah. can go crazy looking for the, the perfect, you know, the perfect yeah. one, you can go down a Pinterest rabbit hole, right? Um, so curating those resources can be um, a challenge as well, finding them once you've, you know, yeah. finding well, them again, once you found them once, things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it, it, it couldn't be overstated, the finding the right resource. I mean, sometimes there's yeah. like authentic, one of one of the great characteristics of authentic resources, is the fact that they are you know, the, the, the production qualities are just so much better than what I could produce. And oftentimes even what like, you know, really big box publishing companies can produce. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's important not to necessarily be, um, you know, not, not to be tricked by that really high production value and say, well, therefore it must be relevant in my classroom. It must be a really quality resource. Your students will dictate that your, you know, where you are in, in your, your unit or where you are in your curriculum, that's really what's going to dictate that. Um, and I, I, I've, I've cautioned that working with authentic resources is really a double-edged sword. Um, on one hand, like there is, there's a, there's an emotional component to our students successfully working with an authentic resource. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's truly, it's one of the reasons why I love working with authentic research. It's the reason why in that example yeah. that I just gave you on day two, I'm giving them an authentic document, not necessarily because it's like wildly curricularly relevant, but because I want them to have that experience of like, I just, I just interpreted this document. Yeah successfully, like I can do this. The other edge of that sword though, is that if we're working with authentic documents and our students are not successful in accessing them, well, then all of a sudden we are kind of cultivating this lack of efficacy on their part where they've like, wait, well, can I do this? Am I like, this is too hard. It's too much going on. And so it really is a double-edged sword. And that's why like, finding the right resource and finding certainly the right collection of resources takes so much time because there's, there's so much thought that needs to go into it for sure. Yeah. And, and you're so right because it can become overwhelming very, very quickly. Um, and I, I always loved one strategy of, I don't know who ever told me this a million years ago about, about a zoom, a, a, like a zoom lens and how you might have the perfect resource and it might be an infographic that is, huge with so much content and you can use that lens and just zoom into one little part of it. They don't need to see all of that authentic resource. They don't need to have all of that content. And if you need to give them some supports to, to figure it out, but, um, but you're right. And it is, and yet all of these challenges are there and yet it's so important, right? Because when they go out into the real world and use the language, they're going to encounter things that they don't understand. Um, we need to help them be successful, but we also need to have them cope with that. You're not going to understand everything on this and that's okay. Sort of right. a thing as well. Well, um, and that's so. like, again, this is, you know, we, I, I talk about like the, the tolerance for ambiguity and how valuable that is for our students. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a proponent of, you know, not just a comprehension based approach or, a, you know, an acquisition driven instruction, but also incorporating authentic materials, because I think authentic materials, if used appropriately, if selected appropriately, can benefit our students by developing that linguistic tolerance for ambiguity. But something that I think that gets less attention is also a cultural tolerance for ambiguity. And that the more that we yeah. have our students interacting with diverse ideas and diverse products, practices, and perspectives, um, we can get them to 
find comfort in the this is different and I don't understand it, but that doesn't make it bad. Uh, and so that tolerance for ambiguity, again, it's it's a dynamic piece. And we, we're, we're familiar with the linguistic tolerance for ambiguity. And I think we're less familiar with that, that cultural tolerance for ambiguity, but it's equally as important as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, because again, that's that's life, right? <laughs> that's all of our lives every day going through the world as human beings, right? That these are the things that that we encounter and and again, what a great what a what a an opportunity we have in yeah. our profession to to do this, right? And to to have this be our our goal and our our vision and our our mission in life Absolutely. to really help our our students do that. I just I think it's you know for all the the challenges and the struggles and all I mean that that is not to negate any of that, um, but to have at our core that that purpose is is I feel very lucky to be a part without, of that. So. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, is there anything else, Rich, that you would kind of like to say to the listeners, just to kind of come back to the either the why or the how or the what with with teaching um, to these kind of some last minute sort of tips or wisdom that you I, would like I think to share. I think the last the last piece just to kind of go back to the why and I know we we have danced around the why a lot in this conversation I'm grateful for that um, and it really shouldn't be overlooked if you look at our standards if you look at those five C's it is I mean it is. It is all about a content-based instruction. I mean, very, very few of those sub-goals are, are language-specific or, or language-only. Most of them are tied to our students using language to understand something better, to understand the world greater. And so, I mean, I, I think if we're really, if we're really intending to provide standard-based instruction, this is a critical component of it, right? And really, I mean, I think that that's just something that kind of has to be acknowledged. And, and again, you know, yeah. I think teachers want to be doing their best. They want to be kind of teaching to the standard. Well, this is this is one of the ways that you do it. And if your curriculum doesn't align with it, the issue is the curriculum. It's not the fact that you know what I mean. It, that's where yeah. that's where you should begin to, to question. Yeah, that isn't isn't that true? I know I had some. Um a long time ago, a similar sort of thing. And a, and a, a principal come in and said, well, I don't really know why you're doing this. It was a cultural component. And I said, well, because the standards tell me I need to do this. This yeah. is part of my profession. This is part of my expectation. Um, do you want me not to? <laughs> do you right. want me not to follow my standards? Right. And he's like, uh, uh, no, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, you know, we are in that perfect position to, to do some things that maybe other content areas don't have that mandate to do and don't have that opportunity um, to do without it being extra and it's yeah. not extra for us. So yeah. uh, I think that's a great way to, to kind of end this conversation. So I just want to thank you so much. This was so much fun. It was so great talking with you and getting to um, hear your, your thoughts on this. And I look forward to hopefully someday sitting down and having coffee in person. It would, it would absolutely <laughs> be my pleasure. Michelle, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Uh, honestly, this has been a really enjoyable, enjoyable conversation for me. So thank you. Thank you so much.